Uh, is it still true that girls' shirts or blouse buttons are on a different side from blokes? So this is a sexist microphone. <laughs> because it is for girls. But then I guess if it was the other way, it would be for boys, and that would be sexist too. So I don't have to do with it, really. Is that going to work like that? Does that still work? You can hear? Uh, well, look, I suspect that it's true to say that of all the weird and misleading things that have been taught in the name of the Christian faith, the book of Revelation could be blamed for more than its fair share. Uh, there are no two ways about it. Uh, it is a freaking weird book. Uh, it's a bit like if all you've known as music is proper music written before the turn of the 18th century, Bach and Mozart and poop like that, and then you heard rap for the first time, boom, tsh, boom, tsh, that you might think, well, what has just assaulted my ears? Uh, frankly, Revelation is an assault on our theological and spiritual ears, trained as they are on the Gospels and the Epistles. Let's do a bit of a hands up here. Who has read sometime in the last two years the book of Revelation in full? Ah, there's a bunch of weirdos here too. That's good. Good on you. Who understood it? Don't lie. That's all right. Thank you. Exactly. Who understands it? My goodness. Well, be that as it may, there is a blessing in reading the book of Revelation. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you need to get them out. Uh, if you don't have your Bibles, then you need to stand up and so that we can publicly humiliate. No, no. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, remember, Duncan will give you one. You need to bring a Bible to uni, especially with Revelation. You need to bring a Bible to the public meeting. Get a Bible out. I've got a, a Bible here. Is anyone a Bible? Actually, can't have it because I need to refer to it later. You need your Bible. Get your Bible out and turn to the back. Revelation, like Genesis, is easy to find. It's next to the cover. <laughs> Unless you've got one of those Bibles with cheat notes in the back of it, like a concordance, so you don't have to use your memory. Everyone, can anyone not see the book of Revelation right now? Anyone not see it? You need to be near someone. Open it up. Chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. So there you go. If you read this, if you come to these public meetings and read uh, with us the book of Revelation over the next four weeks, then the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ is blessed are you. You're blessed. You receive a blessing. And that's the blessing we seek from God as we spend time in the apocalypse. Now, actually, if you begin at verse 4, you'd think that it was a fairly ordinary letter. You see there, standard sort of form, who it's from, who it's to, a Christian greeting in the name of God, and then a blessing on the name of God. Verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom priest serving his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so if I think, look, John, if you'd only kept going like that, all would be well. Who's it from? It's from John. Who's it to? It's from the, to the seven churches that are in Asia. That is uh, not what we call Asia. It's what was the Roman province then called Asia, what we now call Turkey. 
uh, on the end of the Mediterranean there. Uh, and there was a Christian greeting, grace to you and peace from God, God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son. And then the prayer that the giver of this grace and peace, first the Son and then the Father, would be uncontested in their reign and authority that people would respond to God as they should. It's an easy enough introduction, isn't it? Well, interestingly, there are two introductions to this book. An introduction to the introduction, which indicates that this is going to be more than your average letter. Verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must take place soon, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So this introduction to the introduction indicates that this is a letter to uh, the seven churches and it is a revelation. The reason the book is called the book of Revelation, not Revelations, by the way, um, you get clipped around the ears if you call it the book of Revelations. Uh, that's not good. It's the, it's the Revelation, or literally the Apocalypse. That's the Greek word, Apocalypsis, uh, for the English translation, Revelation. This is the Apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Now, the word Apocalypse is a word with a bad vibe, isn't it? Revelation, you think, oh, Revelation, that's warm and fuzzy, nice to see things revealed. Apocalypse, what, you think Vietnam War, don't you, really? That's what you think, from the book and the movie? Uh, it's bad vibe. Uh, uh, not just the Vietnam War, but uh, especially after the invention of the nuclear bomb and echoes of the destruction of the world in a fireball. The apocalypse of Jesus Christ is when he blows everything up. Not. Uh, the word apocalypse, or the word revelation, simply means revealing, the, the unfolding, the disclosing of what was previously hidden and secret, the making clear and plain what was unknown and confused before. Almost always in the Bible, the apocalypse... The revelation, the unfolding, is the apocalypse, the unfolding of the will and purpose of God and his ultimate will and purpose, particularly. That's okay, we have revelation all the time. There's revelation through Jesus, there's revelation through the apostles Peter and John and Paul, there's apocalypse all over the Bible, actually. It's all about apocalypse. This is no different at that level. It's just the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must take place soon. So on the one hand, this is very familiar to us, we're going to see some revelation take place as we read this book. But on the other hand, the method of this revelation, of this disclosing, is really unfamiliar to us. Is really very weird. And I suspect it's true to say that you will never work harder to understand a section of the Bible than you will need to work in trying to understand Revelation. Frankly, it comes to us as something of a foreign language. Uh, imagine you were part of what used to be called ism. Now it's called? Focus, yes. Focus. Uh, and your English is really pretty moderate. And you go along to a really complicated lecture in, you know, I don't know what's a complicated lecture, <laughs> veterinary biology or some sort of thing. Uh, and there's language going everywhere. It's all just a different language from what you're used to and you'll have to work triple time to just try to get 
to terms with it at all. Well, Revelation comes to us, frankly, in, in a different language. It is the language of what has been called apocalyptic literature. It's, it's a different way of talking and we have to work triple time in order to get through it, to understand it. What I'm going to do is try and provide for you over these next four weeks a road map of the whole book. Uh, and we're going to, you're going to work very hard uh, over these next four weeks. We won't spend much time on the detail. We just won't have time to do that. But, but I'm aiming to give you something that will give you the, the bird's eye picture from above that will enable you to navigate your way from the start to the finish of it. And when it feels like hard going, and it will feel like hard going, then remember, chapter 1, verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it. Okay, so remember the blessing. God will bless you as you seek to understand this portion of his word. So, uh, John, in good prophetic style then, uh, tells them of his commissioning. Uh, He's going to write about the revelation of Jesus Christ. He needs to tell you how he's got a revelation of Jesus Christ and his authorization to give them this revelation. Uh, He was on a small island, uh, quite likely in exile for being faithful to Christ. He's in the spirit on the Lord's day. Whatever that means, we don't know. He doesn't say. He just assumes we'll understand it. No point speculating about it. Anyway, behind him, he hears a loud voice like a trumpet saying to him, chapter 1, verse 11, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. Now, you hear a voice behind you, what do you do? Turn around. Good. See, it's not so hard, is it, really? There you go. Naturally enough, he turns around and it is the vision of what he sees as the person speaking to him that gives the command to write down in a book what he sees, it's authority. Verse 12, Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And on turning I saw a really weird thing. On turning I saw seven golden lampstands. Now what's a lampstand? What's a stand you put a lamp on? Actually, that's not very difficult. Uh, And in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash across his chest. This is before Miss World. Okay, so don't think that. His head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined as in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. So try and picture that. Here's a picture of a person who's big enough to hold some stars in his hand. That doesn't work. And then if that doesn't work, from his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. Jesus talks about having a, a, a log in your eye, right? Zoom, zoom. Well, this is nothing. A sharp, two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And his face was like the sun shining with full force. John is not trying to describe for you what you might photograph at this point. What he sees in the Spirit is weird. It's meant to be weird because it speaks with the vivid power of word pictures rather than simply with words. 
The first thing he sees is seven golden lampstands, which later on in the chapter, in verse 20, we're told means the seven churches to which he is writing. Although the number seven is not going to be accidental. No number in Revelation is accidental and virtually no number in Revelation is literal either. Seven has about it the sense of wholeness or completion, like the seven days of creation, six of creation and one of rest. And, And so in his mind this is the whole church. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. That is the whole church. A lampstand is something upon which you put a lamp and the reference here is that the lamps are found in a temple. The temple is where God is. And in the midst of these lampstands, these churches, is, is a human figure. That's what one like a son of man means, except instead of saying a human figure, by saying it one like a son of man, what John does is what he does more than 400 times in his book. More than 400 times in his book, he takes a section or phrase or word from the Old Testament and picks it up and uses it in his book. One of the real challenges for us, and one of the reasons I think we find it so difficult to understand Revelation is, we know virtually nothing really about the Old Testament. We are so woeful in our knowledge and understanding of the Old Testament that 400 times John uses the Old Testament to illuminate his meaning, and we miss 395 of them. The bits where it's quoted and indented, sometimes that helps. Uh, but, but, but we miss a lot of them. One like a son of man. No, you don't miss, do you? You know where that comes from, don't you? It comes from? Oh. Let's try that again. It comes, yes, it comes from Daniel. That's right. Daniel chapter 7. In other words, by refer, what, what John is doing here is by referring to this figure that he's describing as one like a son of man, quoting Daniel, what he's doing is saying, that thing which Daniel was on about, that thing, that program, that task, that job, that mission is now fulfilled in this one. In Daniel, who does the Son of Man refer to? Read the rest of chapter 7 of Daniel. It refers to God's people Israel. That's who the Son of Man is in Daniel 7. The beasts are nations uh, and the one like a Son of Man is a nation. It's not a particular individual. It's a nation. Israel, the saints of the Most High, it says in Daniel 7. And John takes it, following the good example of Jesus, picks up this and says, this one who he's talking to is the one who fulfills that program in Daniel chapter 7. And and that thought that this one is the Daniel 7 figure is reinforced with the description that John gives of this human figure. It's got a long robe with a golden sash. These are the kinds of clothes that priests in the temple wore when they did their job, which was to tend the lamps. That's what they did, at least in part, in the temple. They tended their lamps, they removed the used wicks and oil and refilled them with fresh oil. So so immediately the description indicates that we're dealing with a a priestly figure here who attends to the lampstands in the temple. What's a lampstand? A church. So here is one who will tend to the churches. You're getting a sense of how the imagery works? He has white head and hair. Pure white. Pure white, of course, which is the colour of purity. That's why brides wear white. Uh, and the colour of, of God that judges hair in Daniel chapter 7's picture. In other words, this is one who has the authority and purity of God. Except, of course, for his eyes, which burn bright like a flame of fire, a piercing gaze which leads to blessing or judgment. His feet are also coloured, bronze, 
that's been fired in, his, in a furnace and his voice uh, is not only like a trumpet, which is what John turned around to see, but is also like the sound of many waters. Uh, many waters doesn't mean a nice little gentle brook trickling down. Many waters is thunderous, powerful waters. Deep and terrifying. And he is very, very strong. Seven stars in his hand. That's pretty strong. Which we're later told are the seven angels of the churches. Uh, perhaps a way of talking about their corporate identity. And most weird, of course, uh, of all, is the mouth, which has got a sharp two-edged sword coming out of it. That is, out of his mouth, what comes out of your mouth? Words. These are words that get in, that speak to the heart, that penetrate inside a person's soul, that cut through the bluff and the surface and the pretending and the posturing that we do. And altogether his face is like the sun shining with full force, which means what? What's the one thing you can't do to the sun? Look at it. It's an incredible picture, isn't it? It's meant to be an incredible picture. It's all true. It's all true. But it's true, not like a photo is true. That's true in one very limited, sometimes useful, but very limited way, a photograph. It's true like a cartoon is true. True in a graphic and literary way rather than a literal way and is all the more powerful for it. You you see how the, the way that John is introducing us to his revelation indicates that although he'll use the language in very bizarre manner, he doesn't do that because he hasn't got a sort of a better, more accurate way of doing things. He does it because it's more powerful and it more truly communicates. And John does what you or I would do in such a circumstance. He falls at his feet as though dead. You encounter one like this and you don't have a chat. You don't walk up to him and slap him on the back. G'day, how you doing, buddy? He does what any biblical character does, really, when confronted with the reality of the living and true God. Falls to his feet as though dead. And then with incredible tenderness, this awesome individual connects with John, places his hand on his shoulder and reassures him. Verse 17. Do not be afraid. One of the least likely to be obeyed commandments in the Bible. (laughs) Hey, don't be afraid. Watch out for the sword, but don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and see I am alive forever and ever and I have the keys of death and Hades. Now write what you have seen, what is and what is to take place after this. The challenge of John, uh, John's revelation, is to work with the language in a way that is positive and constructive, not work in a way that's silly. On the one hand, we hear that this one was dead and see is alive forever and ever. We don't particularly think that that's pictorial language. We understand that that connects with a reality in a fairly one-to-one corresponding kind of way. Who is this one who is dead and see is alive forever and ever? We know who that is, don't we? That's Jesus. He says he has the keys of death and Hades. What do you think? He reached into his pocket and got out a key? Now we know that keys at this point is, is a metaphor for the power that he has over death. Because he's the resurrected one. 
And it's interesting, in that same sentence, you have a, a reference to real events, realities which is fairly one-to-one corresponding, and you have a reference to real events, real realities, the power of Jesus over death, in a way that's highly metaphorical. The idea that death is a prison, and there are keys to that prison, and it's really good to know the one who's got the keys. And so we're going to need to work hard to get the use of this language right. Now, chapters 2 and 3 are the notes that this Son of Man writes to the lampstands, to the churches amongst which he stands. He is there amongst them. He writes to his lampstands. In a sense, I think chapters 2 and 3 are the easiest part of Revelation and so we're not going to look at them today. They speak of Jesus, the priest in his priestly gear, tending the wicks of his lampstand churches. He's trimming sin here, you see. He's cutting out false teaching there. He's refilling oil reservoirs over there. And each time, if you read through the little seven notes, there's a pattern to them. The outside first and the seventh are most negative. They're pretty harsh. The second and the sixth are basically pretty positive. And the middle three, third, fourth and fifth are are neutral, a bit positive and a bit negative. They have a pattern, but in each one, nonetheless, they constitute a call for readiness to war. The letters to the churches are a call to conquer. It's all about victory and war and conquering. Now, we who are familiar with the way that Revelation has been used to justify war and continues in American foreign policy to this day to be used in a way that justifies all sorts of things in the Middle East... Right? Really, we, we would get nervous, I think. I get nervous when you hear about conquer. Get ready to conquer. We'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. The churches to whom he writes needs this encouragement. They need this encouragement because they face severe trials. They face severe trials from within as well as from without. From within, they had amongst them those who'd tampered with the package. They tampered with the gospel package. They were cutting their theological and spiritual sails to suit the prevailing winds. The culture around them was pagan, strongly, proudly pagan. This book is probably written in the uh, 95 to 100 period, so just right at the very end of the first century AD. And there were those that within the churches who thought that a bit of paganism mixed with a bit of Christianity was okay, especially if it made life in general easier. And that's not an unfamiliar scenario for us, is it? There are plenty of people who think that a bit of paganism in our culture mixed in with a bit of Christianity is all very spiritually excellent. That were the challenges within, but the challenges from without are even greater. This resurgent paganism had turned nasty, not just mixing, but equating politics and religion, requiring the worship of the emperor. In this case, if it is written at the end of the first century, the emperor Domitian. And if you didn't worship the emperor, then you faced punishment for treason, which in those days was nothing nearly so civil as a quick execution. Monstrous, subhuman torture, vicious hatefulness. That's what you got for treason. That's what Christians were put in front of the emperor to do to worship his statue. You make your decision right then. What are you going to do? Hold before the university, senate, taken to the quadrangle. There it is. Worship the vice chair. No, that's not going to work, is it? <laughs> Get chucked out of uni? Do you make excuse? Look, 
I'll just say the words because they, they, they don't mean anything. It's just what's in my heart that matters. It, it's alright if I'm a little bit compromised because Jesus died for my sins so I'm forgiven anyway. Very tough situation. Christians being slaughtered. And they need the encouragement of their leader. Powerful, majestic, authoritative. To trim, refill, encourage. They need this encouragement, like we need this encouragement, to conquer. And so... John writes, he writes these notes and after he's seen this vision, after this call to battle for each of the churches, John now sees a second vision and if you thought the first one was good, it's got nothing on this. Chapter 4, verse 1. After this I looked and there in heaven a door stood open and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. John now sees a vision, he looks into heaven and what he sees there he relates over the next chapters. It is a marvellous vision, it includes some of the most controversial material in Revelation and the key to understanding is to get clear exactly where this open door that John sees leads or in other words to understand what John talks about when he talks about heaven. How you understand heaven will determine a lot of how you read Revelation. Now you've got two basic options when you understand uh, and come across this idea of heaven. Uh, On the one hand, you can see heaven as basically about the future, or in particular the fulfilment. That is, when God completes his purposes the way things are, when God fixes up the mess what constitutes the Christian hope and all that goes along with that. The return of Jesus, the day of judgment. If if that's what John sees now in heaven, that will determine how you read the rest of Revelation. But I want to suggest that there's another way of reading Revelation, another way of understanding heaven. Heaven not so much as the future, but heaven as the sphere of spiritual reality. Heaven is the sphere of spiritual reality and truth. Heaven as the same place as us here. It's interesting. Ask yourself the question, where is God now? Answer, heaven. That's where God is, isn't it? Ask another question. Is God here amongst us? So put those two things together. Where is God now? He's in heaven. Is God here amongst us? Yes. So that means heaven is here. Heaven is here. It's here, but it's it's not here, of course. It's here in, in a way that we don't see or perceive or even participate in. It's here in what? Maybe another dimension. Another kind of perspective or dimension, the perspective or dimension of unparalleled obedience and submission to Jesus, of clarity and perfect truthfulness, not lies and deceptions and rebellion. It's God's take on this world. 
I want to suggest that Revelation is best read, meaning heaven as this, rather than this. And as we go through, what you'll need to do is test that theory. Test that theory. It's a bit like The Matrix. You've seen The Matrix, haven't you? Uh, that movie uh, based on a 400-year-old idea of René Descartes, but hey, once it's 400 years old, I think copyright's out. Um, the idea is that the world turns out to be a great big illusion, that we're all being deceived by some great being and the reality is very different to what we perceive. In the case of The Matrix, it's a technologically updated version where human beings are the mere providers of electricity to feed the power needs of the real rulers of the world, namely computers. They've lined up millions and millions of people in pods with uh, things stuck into their spines to get out the electricity uh, whilst at the same time feeding signals to their brains from a mega computer that give us the idea of the world that we live in. And Keanu Reeves, of course, messianically called... NEO, an acronym of the one. I mean, it's a bit American, so it's a bit sort of, (coughs) did you miss this? Did you miss this? Zion, you know, Babylon. It's all just a bit too obvious. Keanu being the ultra-intelligent computer geek that you can imagine him being. He's helped to draw the curtain back. You see, what happens when you draw the curtain back? There is revelation. That's what happens. When you draw the curtain back, there's revelation to get behind the perception and so he takes the red pill. And there's that great scene with, um, what's his name, the guy without the glasses around the ears, he's just got the glasses on his nose. Morpheus. Morpheus. Oh, well, Morpheus. <laughs> and uh, he wakes up having taken the red pill and saves the world or dies trying. You can't figure out really which one it is. I want to suggest you that in a sense Revelation is the account of the Apostle John taking the red pill. It's where Jesus draws back the curtain and enables John to get behind the perception to the reality. And that's what heaven is, you see. Heaven is that sphere of spiritual reality where the masks are off and both good and evil are seen for what they really are. It's not so much about the future... It's certainly not about the place you go to when you die, although the vision of heaven will have things to say about both the future and what happens to some people who are Christians when they die. Rather, heaven is about reality, this reality, the same reality that the seven churches are experiencing, except now it's the truth about that, not the lies that the world tells. Which is why the vision of heaven will be in such weird terms. We're going to hear about thrones and lions and lambs and living creatures and elders and 144,000 people and so on and so on. None of it is real. All of it is real. All at the same time. There is no throne when you stop to think about it. God doesn't have a bottom. What's the point of having a throne to sit on? There is no lamb. There's not a lion. Jesus is a human being, not an animal. There are no living creatures. There are not 144,000. There are none of these things, literally. They all refer to things that do exist, but they do so in a literary, symbolic way, not in a literal way. That's what apocalyptic language is. It is a way, it's maybe in fact the only way to describe the world as we experience it, 
the events that we experience, but to describe them in terms that adequately portray their full spiritual significance. Let me say it again, because if there's one thing I want you to get from today, it's this point. The way apocalyptic language works is by using weird cosmic ideas, terms, in order to give ordinary space-time events their full spiritual and theological significance. Heaven is John's invitation to see the actual world from God's perspective. From God's perspective. You can't use ordinary language to describe the spiritual significance of ordinary events. And so what you do is you use a special kind of a language, a spiritual language, to communicate the spiritual substance of these ordinary events. And the point is that knowing this, knowing what is true, is enormously strengthening for you to live for Christ in the face of the lies that the world tells. So let's peer into heaven for a bit, hey? Verse 2 of chapter 4. At once I was in the Spirit, and there in heaven stood a throne, with one seated on the throne, and the one seated there looks like jasper and carnelian, and around the throne there was a rainbow that looks like an emerald. The most fundamental thing to say about all of reality is God is at the centre of it. That's true of our world, even if no one really knows it. In a world that replaces and ignores God and despises and even persecutes his people, the starting point, the centre, the core, the foundation of reality is the sovereign lordship of God Almighty. So glorious that it's very interesting. He's never described. This reality is recognised by the heavenly entourage, verse 4. Around the throne are 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones are 24 elders dressed in white robes with golden crowns on their heads. Coming from the throne are flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and in front of every throne burn seven flaming torches which are the seven spirits of God. Just by the way, any time you want to take any number in Revelation literally, just try and think through whether God has seven Holy Spirits. And in front of the throne there is something like a sea of glass, like crystal. Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with a face like a human face, and the fourth living creature like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and inside. (laughs) If reality consists of God at the centre, then it also consists of the rest of things ordering themselves around that centre, recognising the one on the throne. The 24 elders represent all of God's people. The 12 patriarchs of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, plus the 12 apostles, reigning with God, you see. They've got thrones and crowns as well, dressed for glory. Also present are the four living creatures, each one the head of a segment of creaturely life. The lion, the greatest of the wild animals, the ox, the greatest of the domestic animals, the human being, the pinnacle of all the animals, and the eagle, the greatest of the birds. And and what these four creatures do, which of course are not a literal four creatures, there's no four individual creatures, but they're representative of all creation, what they do is sing, which of course means that they don't literally sing, they worship. Verse 8, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and inside, in other words, they're not dumb. Day and night, without ceasing, they sing, Holy, 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 the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, if you think that this is the future... 
and that eternity consists of singing the same song several gazillion billion times in a row, then I say, have fun! (laughs) Language to give the full spiritual significance of what is true about our world. What is true about our world is that God is at the centre and all of creation is ordered around him. That's what's true and right. When they do their thing, the 24 elders, again, there's not 24 people, right? Representative of all God's people, they respond in kind, they cast their crowns down before God. In other words, they submit to his great lordship and also sing, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Notice the content. The content is that God is the great sovereign Lord, the one who was and is and is to come. And in particular, the great Lord over creation. He is worthy for he's created all things, which is what all things are saying to him. You're worthy because you created all things like us. And by his will they exist and were created. Their song is the song of the kingship of God. That's actually the theme of Revelation. It's the kingship of God in his world. Now, as well, just pausing here for a moment, you see, we are creatures, you and I. It is in our nature to worship. It, it is our calling, actually, to worship, and we will do it. We will express our dependence, and we will seek grace, and we will find a purpose. And you will do that truly, or you'll do it falsely. True worship is what you see here, worship of the Creator. False worship is worship of anyone or anything else other than this one on the throne. It can be worship of something outside yourself, your country, your emperor, if you're in the first century Roman Empire. It can be your team, it can be your family. Or it can be inside yourself, your own comfort, your security, your prosperity, your advancement. You are a worshipping creature. That is the spiritual truth of the matter. That is the truth about you. And when you swallow the pill of Revelation 4, the question that's put to you is, where is my worship? Where actually is my worship? For this is what is true about the world. True worship is the worship of God. But there's more. The vision expands. Chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll. The scroll is very important. And we'll say more about it in a moment and next week. Written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Uh, The one on the throne has a book. Uh, It's a bit of parchment wrapped around a stick. That's how a scroll works. And when you get to the end, it's got seven wax seals along the end that stick it to the previous roll to keep it shut. The scroll, presumably, is, is the decrees. That's what scrolls carry, decrees the will of the one whose scroll it is. But there's a problem, verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. No one is competent to enact the decrees and purposes of God. This is utterly catastrophic bitter weeping. But then verse 5, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. There is one who is worthy. 
The imagery is taken from two Old Testament texts. It's Genesis chapter 49, which is a blessing by Jacob on his twelve sons, in this case uh, Judah, and also Isaiah 11, which speaks of a king who will come from the house of David. There is one who is worthy. It is the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, the Lion King, if you like. That's the announcement that John hears. What he sees, though, is very different. Verse 6, Revelation 5, verse 6. Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. This this lion king from the house of David, the great conquering hero, the victor who smashes his enemies, is a slain lamb. And again, suddenly everything sharpens up a little bit as a matter of spiritual truth. The way it is in heaven, the way it is from God's perspective, the way reality really is, is that conquest is accomplished through sacrifice. The lion, the king, rules by getting slaughtered. The world will tell us they're alternatives to each other, won't it? That the way you win in life is to get up over other people. The way you win in life is to push other people down. The way you win in life is to do better than others. To have the biggest house, the biggest number of zeros after your income level. The biggest number of sexual conquests. That's how you win in life. But what you see when you see into heaven is that that's not the case. The way that you win is by sacrifice. That's how the churches are to conquer, you see. Through sacrifice, like the lamb. And it's this suffering that makes him worthy to open the scroll, that is, to enact the decrees of God. And so this lamb comes and takes the scroll. You wonder how does a lamb take a scroll, doesn't have fingers? It's imagery. And when he does, he's praised in precisely the same terms as the one who is on the throne. First the four living creatures and the 24 elders then the angels and then finally the whole creation in the crescendo of heaven, chapter 4, verse 13, uh, sorry, 5, 13. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing to the one who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Uh, There are lots of sub-Christian religions, uh, Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses and so on, who will not do what heaven does. They will not worship Jesus as God. And the the abhorrence of the heresy uh, of that is clear here, isn't it? Because heaven worships Jesus. And so shall we. This is what is true about our world. God at the centre. The lion who is the lamb who is conquered through sacrifice and all worshipping him in his victory. Now, the uh, scene unfolds further and the lamb proceeds to pop the seals. 
One, two, three, four. Bad news. Out come the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That is, the four horsemen of the book of Revelation. Uh, we've uh, run out of time, and so I'm going to stop at this point uh, and leave you to read, if you can please, read chapters 6 and 7 uh, for next week. See what you can make of chapters 6 and 7. We've got the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We've got the um, 144,000 and there'll be a pop quiz uh, on it as we join together next week. I look forward to seeing you then. The message from today is this. What we see in heaven is the truth about our world. What we see in heaven actually is the truth too about the church. What, what do we hear about those who worship Jesus? We're stupid, it's feeble, it's culturally irrelevant, it's intellectually ridiculous, it's nonsense. What heaven tells us is that no, to worship Jesus is to be in touch with the centre of reality. And this is encouragement to stay fiercely, determinedly, even martyringly, even when it costs you suffering to the point of death, like it did Jesus, to stay the course, to stay with Jesus. Uh, He is the centre of all it is. I'll see you next week.